Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson. With me is Aaron Miller. This is our Question of the Week episode. And for, I think, probably the third time in the last five weeks or so, we're doing a deep dive on a developer event. So did this with Microsoft last week. I did it with Facebook's F8 a couple of weeks before that. And this week, it's Google's I.O. developer conference that we'll be talking about. So this episode will be a deep dive into the news from Google's developer conference, all the announcements that were made there, uh, and then our news roundup episode, which should be up tomorrow sometime on Friday, will cover some of the week's other top tech news. So we'll be back with that tomorrow. This episode will be just on the Google news. Uh, the keynote uh, was Wednesday morning to kick things off, and that's really where that's the best summary, I think, of the major news from the event. So it's that that we're going to focus on. There was a developer keynote later in the day yesterday, and there was also a VRAR keynote today, Thursday. Um, we might sort of mention those briefly because they sort of fleshed out a couple of details a little bit more. Uh, but we'll mostly focus on the, the main keynote itself. Uh, one of the things that's worth noting about that keynote is, you know, if you think about this as a developer conference, you think about what Google's biggest developer platform is, it's obviously Android, um, and what we'll come onto the numbers around that in just a minute. What was notable for me was that out of what was originally supposed to be a 90-minute keynote, they didn't get to Android until about 75 minutes in. Um, so what should have been the last 15 minutes. In the end, as Google has done before, even though they said it was going to be a 90-minute keynote, it was a two-hour keynote. Don't know why they do that. It's a frustration for anybody who's trying to cover it and then make plans around it. But uh, at any rate, Android was somewhat secondary. And this is the sort of second year in a row where that's been the case, partly because Google has been releasing the new version of Android a little before I.O. and then just sort of covering some of the stuff that's already known uh, at I.O. itself. But it does feel like Android's being demoted as a sort of focus for this event. And I think another reason for that is we've just pulled lots and lots of stuff out of it and into apps, into the sort of apps and services layer. That in turn exists not just in Android, but across Android and increasingly iOS. And I think, you know, I don't have a transcript to hand, but I think one of the most frequently repeated phrases during the event was, this is available on Android and iOS. Um, that really seemed to be a major theme for a lot of what they talked about in the first hour, which was um, some general AI machine learning stuff, but then also uh, some stuff about Google Photos and the Google Assistant uh, specifically, um, all of which you know exists on iOS as well as Android. So it was an interesting focus. But let's drill down into the individual parts of the keynote, starting with the beginning. Uh, there's a sort of intro video at the beginning, uh, sort of an animation suggesting kind of the progression of an idea, maybe this kind of an idea that a developer might have that they would turn into an app using Google's developer tools. It was a bit vague, it was a bit long, frankly. Um, felt like a bit of an odd way to, to start the event in some ways. Um, but then they moved on to Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, who then talked about a whole range of different things, including some numbers up front, um, reiterated this idea that they have seven products or services that have at least a billion users, uh, and that's a sort of familiar list at this point, but then ran through some other numbers, Google Drive, Google Photos, each have you know hundreds of millions of users at this point as well. Uh, and then he talked about the fact that earlier this week, Google uh, crossed 2 billion active devices on Android. So it's not users necessarily, because some of those are uh, second devices for the same user, like tablets and smartphones. Some of that's obviously non-user-centric devices, so things that are run by Android, but perhaps a kiosk or a terminal somewhere. Uh, but still, impressive number, and, and interesting to compare in 
and contrasts with Apple, which has a roughly billion user base, so roughly twice the number that Apple has. But anyway, uh, those were some interesting numbers, and then they, they moved on to talking about AI and machine learning. And Aaron, I'll, I'll stop sort of summarizing at this point and just kind of go to you for your take on that first part of the, the keynote and kind of the announcements that were made there around the numbers and the AI stuff. It's really interesting to think about the Android uh, market penetration in context of the way we used to talk about all this as far as desktop OSs are concerned. And Android and mobile, com uh, well, mobile just as a, as a general category really completely changed the way people think about operating systems. And, and I think designing for mobile made an OS much more flexible than Microsoft was ever able to really pull off with Windows. And as a result, you know, there are that so two billion devices running Android on a, on a consistent basis. So that's not that's not the total number ever that have had Android installed, but the active devices now. And that's a that's an amazing thing. And I think it's one of those things that uh, that is really fascinating to look back in on a retrospect because it, the mobile was such a fundamental shift um, that uh, I don't think anybody really appreciated being as big as it ended up being. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it, and it's another interesting thing that's worth noting about that Android number particularly is that, you know, it's, it's 2 billion. As I say, Apple talked I think, a year and a half or so ago now about having a billion user base or um and uh, so, you know, it's an interesting ratio there, which is far less dramatic a split than we're often used to thinking of. If you look at smartphone sales numbers globally, for example, it's, it's more like an 80 to 20 or 90 to 10 split between Android and iOS, depending on the quarter. Um, and, and obviously the user base is much less dramatically different. And again, with Android, that 2 billion isn't all smartphones. It's got some tablets in it, and Apple's base obviously has a large number of iPads and Macs in it as well. But it's probably something like a billion and a half official Android smartphones out there. Um, and by official, I mean not the Chinese variant that, that basically uses the open source version of Android and doesn't run the Google services, but about a billion and a half perhaps smartphones running that version of Android and then um, iPhones, probably another seven, eight hundred million, something like that. So roughly half the size. And then you've got another maybe five hundred million Chinese Android phones out there as well. So um, you know, interesting split globally with with iOS a share perhaps a bit higher than you might think based on those sales numbers. Yeah, and and I will say I, I think it's it's tempting at this point to to write this as though it's an end of a story. Um, but I, that's not. That's not inherently obvious. I, you know, the the revenue that Google generates from Android, um, still like relative to its reach versus say what Google has been able to drum up of revenue off of desktop back, you know, from its um, from its uh, advertising business. There's still a, a pretty big difference there, and and uh, you know, I I don't think it's I don't think any of us should expect or should think of this as an end of a story, I guess mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. I, I think there are a lot of, um, that Google still, I don't think has really figured out mobile the way that they figured out the way that they figured out desktop once upon a day, right? Uh, once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, a, there's still a lot of important question marks out there as far as Android's role as a revenue generator for, for Google. Yeah. And it's not, 
and that goes along with what I was saying about Android and iOS. I think that's the reason for sort of pulling features and functionality out of Android and putting them at the apps layer is partly a recognition that, that Google's kind of lost control over Android. You know, the OEMs and carriers and so on basically largely control which version of Android ends up in people's hands, what it looks like, what the role of the Google services on those is relative to third-party services from the OEMs or carriers and so on. Um, so it's partly about that loss of control. And it's partly also about the fact that within the mobile sphere, iOS is as valuable to Google as Android is, even with a smaller number of users, because that's where the wealthiest users are, often the most attractive in terms of spending money, often the most attractive in terms of targeting advertising. And so, you know, its services really have to be across all of this stuff. And that was one of the striking things last year with the Assistant launching Pixel only. was It was a huge departure from their past strategy in that respect. And, of course, now it's going to the iPhone. It's, you know, available on other devices on Android as well. Um, and so what we're seeing is that was sort of a, a blip, an aberration rather than a change in strategy. Uh, but that's really reflective of what you're saying. You know, the, the, the most attractive users in some ways are elsewhere. They're not just on Android. And their total mobile opportunity must encompass iOS as well for the for Google services. And that means that Android in turn can't be differentiated on the basis of unique services and apps. It has to be differentiated on the basis of OS-level features. And on the other hand, those take roughly two years to get to half the base. So, um, you know, they, they're really kind of stuck there. And so, yeah, they, they I think are really dialing back in terms of Android differentiation from a user perspective. And on the developer side, it really feels like they're, they're tweaking things that bring it up to parity rather than giving it any sort of unique advantages. Um, but we can kind of drill hey. down on that a little bit later. Sorry, carry on. <clears throat> Well, I was just going to say there's a, the the same challenge that Android has as a revenue model for Google applies to the services that they're spinning out so that they can be cross-platform. I mean, it's not it's not immediately obvious that the huge investment in Google Photos, which is really impressive, and we'll get to the details, um, is is going to be a big revenue source for Google. Mm-hmm. Um, and you yeah. could say the same thing for Assistant and uh, and which is now on iOS and, and the other things that. Google is is spinning off as apps and in, in separately packaged services rather than being bundled into Android. The, none of these yet have a really clear and obvious revenue model that um, um, that Google can bank on. I think yeah. this is all still very experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, the the truth of it, though, is as it stands, and we talked about this back when we did uh, the question of the week in online advertising, you know, Google still has a huge, they still have a, a, a huge reservoir of profit to draw from to keep on trying all these different things and put in a, a huge effort into these different services that they're spinning out to be cross-platform. But still, we don't know, you know, how Google's going to make... Uh, make a return on these huge investments. Right, yeah. I mean, they definitely have a mix of revenue, what you might call revenue-generating services and then ecosystem services. In other words, things that add value to the ecosystem but don't necessarily generate revenue in their own right. And Google Photos is obviously an example of that. Google Assistant, as it exists today, is an example of that. I think there are some revenue opportunities there down the road. Google Maps is an interesting mix. There are certainly some revenue opportunities there and they're increasingly showing ads in the maps interface, um, which was, you know, a breaking point in their relationship with Apple around Maps, for example. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it continues to be a very interesting mix. Um, yeah, the ecosystem play makes a lot of sense when you're Apple or Samsung. 
selling devices. Mm. And, the, and the entry point to the ecosystem is where the revenue occurs. Um, Google's entry point into the ecosystem, Google doesn't have a, a, a revenue generating entry point in its ecosystem. And so it's trying to sort of get revenue out of people as they're in the ecosystem. And as people increasingly rely on mobile, it's harder and harder to show them ads is what mm-hmm. it essentially comes down to. Yeah, yeah. And Google's ecosystem is about services. It's not about devices as such. I mean, devices are becoming part of that ecosystem now. Right. Obviously, it's sort of instantiations of the best of Google services and things like the Pixel. But um, but yeah, it's, it's at the services layer. And so it's about the integration between those services, about what those services learn about you collectively and how those improve the experience, but obviously also about what those services learn about you that can be used to grow um, ad revenue as well. So whole mix of stuff. Let's just talk about some of the AI machine learning stuff. I mean, this is a major fe- uh, sort of focus area in the first... 25 minutes or so of the, the keynote, uh, Sundar Pichai talked about it. Really, one of the most striking things was he talked about how they basically rethought all of their products to incorporate AI. And he talked about Street View and Google Maps that can now recognize um, you know, the shop fronts and, and what they say and, and which part of that's the, the actual name of the shop versus the address or some other information that might be there and stuff like that to uh, the Google Home, where they originally planned to have eight mics in the Google Home and got it down to two because they used machine learning and other techniques to, to make better sense of the audio that they were getting in and so on. You know, really AI machine learning kind of filtering through everything. And, and this is a theme we've, we've heard from Microsoft last week. It's a theme we heard to some extent, uh, probably to a lesser extent at Facebook a couple of weeks before that. Um, but, you know, these companies make a big deal out of AI. And, and it's worth noting the sort of order of things. So they talk about AI machine learning. We're really good at this stuff. And here are some examples. And, you know, Apple continues to be sort of the exception to that pattern where it talks about here are the great new features and products we have. By the way, some of this is powered by AI. Um, and, you know, that continues to make more sense to me in terms of a consumer pitch. Consumers don't care about AI or machine learning, they care about good products and features. And I think Google did do a good job of showing some of those off later in the presentation, but they and Microsoft and some of the other companies in the space continue to seem to feel the need to talk up their AI chops independently, uh, sort of as a good in its own right, and then talk about uh, the uh, the specific products and services where it shows up. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think the specific examples have to be what connect with people to make them care. I, I What I was a little frustrated by was how many of those examples and Microsoft had the same problem as these were future tense examples, right? right? These are things that, that you will be able to do someday. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, even when the promise was someday soon, the point is it's not now. Right. I, I thought that, I mean, those that seemed to be the case with a lot of the Google Lens examples that they used. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I, Google has had a reputation in IO of announcing things that take a long time to pan out or never really pan out. Um, it, it seems to, over the last couple of years, it feels like it's reversed that trend and, and has hit benchmarks and ship products as promised. Right. Um, and, and hopefully that continues to be the case, but I think one of the problems with with the way AI is messaged by a lot of these companies, is when you put it all into future tense, it 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 I think all just kind of becomes uh, fuzzy to consumers, right? right? I mean, if you can't open up, you know, the camera in Android right now and and get the things happening that Google talked about, 
you just kind of forget about it, right? Mm-hmm. And you just think, oh, they, you don't you don't connect with it in the same way. And so it'll be interesting to see um, how soon those things start to show up, all these AI-driven improvements. Right. A, a lot of them are behind the scenes is the other challenge, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where, yeah, they're where not visible not to users to it. yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and it's and 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 they can be re- pretty narrow use case features as well, where it's the sort of thing that a consumer might encounter once in every couple months, kind of a thing. And yeah. so, um, yeah, so we'll you know, we'll see. I guess I'm still kind of I'm not a skeptic, certainly, of AI and machine learning as a concept. I think it's going to have really dramatic changes. I just think there, there's a there's a risk in consumer protection of. A, a consumer perception, I should say, of, of of putting all this, all these promises out ahead of time. Yeah, and I think that's one advantage that Apple has is that it talks, you know, it, it has this annual cadence, and, and we can certainly talk about the disadvantages of that, the fact that you can't move as quickly because you basically roll things out once a year. The big advantage is you kind of know when they're coming. Like this is an iOS 11 feature, and therefore it's going to be available in September a few days before the new iPhones go on sale and it will ship on the new iPhones. You know, it's very straightforward. The same thing with Mac OS, same thing with TV OS, watch OS. You know, you know that they're going to land at a particular point in time. And so everything that's part of that package is going to come then. It's going to be available to developers first who can try it out and that kind of thing and, and increasingly through the, the sort of beta program. Um, but, you know, the problem with a lot of the Google stuff is later this year, later in the summer, this, that, and the other, there's a whole mix of stuff that's available today and not available today. And so they do suffer a bit from the not having the annual cadence in terms of the lack of clarity about when stuff's actually going to be available. And Google Lens that you mentioned is a good example of that. You know, this is a camera-based technology that either works as you take as you look through the camera in live mode or can work through Google Photos on photos you've taken previously. You know, very clever sort of image recognition stuff and processing and so on to make sense of what's in the picture and, and pull relevant information out of it and trigger actions and so on from that. But, you know, whereas it's going to be part of Google Assistant, it's going to be part of Google Photos, it's not in either of those things right away. And so, you know, it was one of the most impressive things they showed on stage, and yet it's also one of the things that's not available to anybody immediately. Um, in contrast, you know, Google Photos, which was going to be updating very quickly, Google Assistant, which was immediately available on the iPhone, is this real mix of stuff that's here today and isn't. Um, and it can, that can be a bit confusing and a bit frustrating too. Yeah. Well, let's move on to talking about some of the specifics. Google Assistant um, and Google Home was sort of the next major area that they talked about in the keynote. Uh, Google Assistant, one of the headlines is coming to iPhone. It's already come to Android. They talked about roughly 100 million Android devices already having it available. doesn't mean people are actually using it on those devices or even aware of it, but it's there. Um, and with iPhone, you know, obviously hundreds of millions of additional potential devices on which it can be used. And I'm guessing they got a ton of downloads yesterday. Um, it's obviously mostly relevant for people that are already using the Google Assistant somewhere else or have frustrations with Siri. It will obviously labor under the fact that it won't be integrated, so you can't trigger it from the, the home button or anything like that. You'll have to dig into the app first and then trigger it. Um, some other changes, text input rather than just voice input, so that you can now type into it if you're in a place where voice input isn't appropriate. This is something I've wanted for ages for Siri. I uh, wouldn't be surprised if we get it at some point, either through the standard Siri interface or even potentially through iMessage. I think that'd be an interesting way to go about it, um, where you could message Siri as if it was another one of your contacts. Um, but this is coming to Google Assistant, which I think is smart. 
Another thing is that the apps for Assistant, which are available already through the home device, will now be available in the smartphone versions as well. So third-party developers that create uh, apps that can be used through the Assistant can now expose those on the smartphone versions as well, which will make that a lot more useful and sort of somewhat mirrors what Apple did with Siri extensions uh, last year as well. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that really doubled down on the recent introduction of the individual user recognition stuff that Google does now where it can recognize who you are and then uh, personalize responses to questions based on which user is speaking. Uh, works really well on the home, but it's now going to be part of uh, other features as well. So calling people, for example, is another major feature they announced. So there was a lot of stuff that was sort of catching up with what Amazon's announced recently for Alexa and the Echo. And there was other stuff that seemed to go beyond it. I mean, the calling, for example, you don't have to call somebody else's app or something like that. You actually call real phone numbers in the US for free, which makes it a lot less friction, uh, a lot easier to actually reach people in the ways that they're used to being reached. And some clever stuff about exposing your number if you've tied that to the app and so on as well. Um, some other stuff about integrating entertainment options and so on. And then um, various other bits and pieces around the home. But, but quite a few interesting changes there. I think one of the ones that doesn't quite hit the mark for me is uh, using the Google Home to trigger visual responses on other screens, so smartphones and TVs and so on. just feels like what you really want to do is interact with those devices, not interact with the home, and then have to switch to some kind of screen, especially if it's in another room in the house. So that, that is something of a response to the Echo Show from Amazon, but doesn't feel like it really hits home in quite the same way. Yeah, I agree with the insight in particular about this 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 screen um, triggering, <clears throat> only because I, I don't know. I mean, most people don't just leave their TV screen on, right? Sort of all the time. I mean, they might be watching a show, in which case it would make sense to to interact with uh, you know your Google Home. But again, why not just do it through um, the, you know the the device you're using on the TV to, to watch what you're watching. So <clears throat> I, I think, I, I think we're, it's fun. It's interesting to me that we already are seeing an evolutionary process taking place with these home-based assistants, despite the fact that they are not exactly ubiquitous. I, um, you know, a lot of what, of a lot of what Google talked about with this, with Google home was very evolutionary. It was sort of like, here's a cool new feature. Here's a cool new feature. But the fundamental value proposition didn't really change all that dramatically. I mean, and there were a few things that, I mean, I think the calling thing is really cool. And I think that's one thing that will make the Google Home a stickier um, uh, a stickier product in people's, you know, in terms of people actually using these at home. Um, but uh, it's it feels a little bit like smartwatches, right? Mm. And that they're... Um, it it took a while before smartwatches sort of settled into okay this is what they're for, um, and uh, it feels like that's still sort of getting worked out with these home based listening devices. Uh, I mean the fact that Amazon had a, you know, just launched a screen based version, is a is an example of that sort of still being figured out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I I think the. Um, it was interesting when Google Assistant launched yesterday on the iPhone because I saw a lot of people on Twitter testing it out and then posting screenshots of it failing miserably. Yeah, yeah. 
um, which I, I mean, I don't, I, I assume it just has something to do with it being a newly launched service. Although a couple of those screenshots, um, Google Assistant essentially said, I can't do that until you give me access to A, B, C, D, E, essentially right. private, mm-hmm. you know, private information yeah. to, to make that, to make it work. So I, it was an interesting launch. I, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't really ever tried Google Assistant enough to know how much different it is in Siri, but the truth is I don't use Siri a ton anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's mostly just to create calendar appointments, um, uh, you know, make phone calls when I don't want to pick up my phone, mm-hmm. things like that. So yeah. the, the deeper version of all these assistants in terms of voices still kind of working out. I'm, I, I'm looking forward to text-based access to that um, the way you are. Um, whether it's assistant or Siri or whatever, um, primarily because there are a lot of times when you're sitting in a meeting or something else like that where where the, the intelligence backing up these assistants is what you want access to rather than having to go sort of dig through the web to figure out what you want to do or find what you want to do or, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it just was, I guess to summarize my comments, it just, it was really interesting how the home-based stuff was really evolutionary um, uh, for a product that still hasn't really deeply penetrated uh, consumer tech yet. Yeah, and, and one of the things I think striking that's coming out of both the stuff from Google yesterday and also Amazon's recent announcements is, you know, it's becoming very clear that these companies recognize that a voice-only speaker is not the be-all, end-all. You know, right. for Amazon, it was certainly the Trojan horse that got them into this space, that got them some real attention and some early success, but they clearly recognize it can't meet all of people's needs. And, you know, the Google announcements from today, from yesterday, were similar in that respect, in that they were... Um, you know, all going beyond just being a voice speaker, you know, the text element, the smartphone element, the visual elements, you know, there's a lot of other stuff that people are going to want around this. And of course, you know, for Apple and to some extent Microsoft coming from a different direction here, you know, they have a lot of that stuff already because that's where they started and they're going to eventually expand potentially in a couple of weeks at WWDC into the sort of home speaker market as well. But I think having started from a different place. They're actually doing a lot of stuff already that these companies having to expand into because of where they started. Um, so it's interesting to see these companies both sort of all sort of bleeding across the whole spectrum of different capabilities that these assistants can do, you know, starting from different places, but ending up covering a lot of the same ground in one way or another with slightly different approaches in many cases as well. Yeah. Well, and another thing that I think the announcements yesterday at IO sort of shored up is that these assistants really want to draw you into a full commitment to the ecosystem that they're mm-hmm. t- tied to. I mean, to really get the most out of Google Assistant, you need to be using Gmail and Google Calendars and right. Google Contacts and, and Google Photos and all these other services that that essentially draw you in. And, and undoubtedly, Apple is going to be doing the same thing with Siri in a couple of weeks. And that's a really um, interesting challenge for a couple of reasons. One is it makes the ecosystem super sticky, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it's going to be even harder for Google, for example, to pull Siri slash iCloud slash whatever else Apple provides, you know, to pull those people into Google Assistant because of that tie to Google services. And it also creates an interesting problem for third parties that are trying to um, be a part of these platforms. Uh, you know, I, th- there are there are 
really limited ways that third-party software can hook into these assistants right now. Um, but uh, and and Apple is particularly cautious about it for security reasons and privacy reasons. But there are a bunch of apps I use on my Mac, on my iPad, on my iPhone that are by third parties. And I would love to have deeper Siri integration into those. Um, or if I was an Android user, you know, Google Assistant integration into those. Um, that's a much bigger, hairier problem to solve. And, uh, and one that, you know, is what eventually kind of has to happen for these assistants to be really deeply integrated into everything we do. Instead of just being able to say, hey, Siri, or okay, Google, open up this app. Whoops, I just triggered Siri. Anyway, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the point is, is, you know, to be able to um, dictate a journal entry straight into my journaling app. For example, right. mm -hmm. you know, those sorts of things are still not not really there. Mm -hmm. And yet that is the vision for all these assistants. And so the platform stickiness is a thing that I think is ironically holding them back because you have to fully commit to a platform to enjoy it. And the third party, um, the you know, the, the third party resources out there that aren't baked in also kind of makes the assistants look like they're falling down. Yeah. Because they can't hook into all these other things that other companies and programmers are producing. Yeah, and that's an interesting split, sort of three-way split between Microsoft and Google and Apple. And I'll leave Amazon out of it for a minute. But, you know, you've got Apple, which has always been about Apple services and Apple devices. You've got Google, which, as we've been talking about, is about Google services. Um, to your point just now, it's really about an end-to-end -end commitment to Google services, but on any device. And then you've got Microsoft, whose vision last week that they were selling was kind of, you know, Microsoft connective tissue and some Microsoft services, but also third-party services on any platform. So it's in some ways now the most open of the three, which is an interesting shift given, you know, how focused they used to be on Windows and Office and everything else. You know, they really opened up both with regard to the platforms that they'll run on, but also the services that become part of that ecosystem. And so you've got these three distinct visions now of what, you know, not just assistance, but their sort of ecosystem in general is composed of, you know, with Apple on Apple services on Apple devices, Google with Google services on any device, and then Microsoft now with, you know, Microsoft and third-party services on any platform. Um, so there's different degrees of openness. And Amazon's still somewhere in the middle with a lot of mostly... Amazon devices with some third-party devices starting to support Alexa, third-party skills, but in the Amazon ecosystem and so on. So it's a, it's a funny mix in that respect. But it's an interesting sort of split that we're starting to see there. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk briefly about Google Photos. And, you know, this has been a big focus for three years straight now at I.O. And it's an ironic thing because it's not a developer thing at all. It's an entirely a user feature. Um, there's really no developer angle whatsoever, but it's taken significant time at the last three events. And I think it's a recognition that even though it is a developer conference like WWDC, they know that some fans are really uh, watching to see what they announce for users as well. And frankly, they need something to show off um, through the media to ordinary users that don't care about new developer tools and so on. And they've really used Google Photos in that way. And it's a great uh, example of what they're doing with AI as well. There's a lot of interesting stuff in there with that. And the major focus this time around was sharing, which, you know, as a user of Google Photos, I upload everything to Google Photos. I find it really useful for just storing all my photos from all my different devices and being able to quickly search and find specific photos and videos from the past. I love it for that. I never share or do any of the social stuff. I've shared maybe one or two albums over time for specific things. 
Um, and I think one of the reasons is there's still a lot of friction around that. Um, there's still a lot of steps involved often to sharing. You have to explicitly do it and, you know, it, it takes extra steps and so on. And so they really focused on automating that sharing, both in terms of prompting you to share albums or photos with people when they're in them. So using the facial recognition feature, which, you know, requires some training up front. So it's not still zero friction, but assuming you have that facial recognition up and running and you've told it who various people are, you know, it's at least somewhat more automated. And then also there was a sort of library sharing feature where you share, presumably mostly this will be between spouses or whatever, but you share your entire library with somebody and then they can choose which people or certain other facets they want to have then copied into their own library. Uh, so again, reducing the friction, and I think that's going to be really important for increasing the sort of social and sharing aspects of this. And then there was photo books, which, you know, in some ways it feels like a bizarre blast from the past because it's something that Apple used to have in, in iPhoto years ago and sort of discontinued several years ago, and Google's now going in that direction. But there are there is, again, a real challenge around the friction associated with taking this sort of massive digital shoebox of photos that we all have and then turning that into something that's accessible and you know, easy to digestible, especially by, by people other than ourselves, you know. And so, you know, we don't typically hand our phones over to our kids for them to browse through our photos. And even if they did, it wouldn't be all that satisfying an experience because it's just so many of them or you just get the most recent ones that happen to be on the phone itself. But, you know, we do have some photo books. We have, you know, my wife used to do a blog. We, you know, created a photo book out of that at one point. And our kids love looking through that stuff because it's like one of the few ways that they have of actually seeing those pictures we've taken. So I see the logic there. Again, it feels like a matter of reducing the friction from getting from this massive sort of digital trove of photos that feel somewhat unmanageable to something more manageable. Yeah, I, I'm kind of of two minds about the sharing features. Some of them I thought were a little unnecessary only because we already have a ton of resources for sharing photos. We have SMS or iMessage if you're an iOS user. We have Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook, and there are all these other ways, or just plain old email and attachments. There's so many ways to share photos right now. The idea that it has to be baked into a particular app or service is, I think, one of the reasons sharing within those apps has actually been held back because there are a lot of other ways that people are perfectly happy to share photos. I will say this, though, the, the, the library sharing across accounts is a huge pain point still on on uh, an iOS with photos. Yeah. And so I use iCloud Photo Library um, and only because I like that it sort of syncs to sort of everything, you know. And I realize Google Photos does that too, but it comes with the benefit of being baked into the OS for all these mm -hmm. other services and features. But easily, hands down for me, the biggest pain point for iCloud Photo Library is that is that I, on my wife's iPhone, have to use my set up my iCloud account on her phone as the default primary account and then I add her her unique her personal iCloud account into iMessage and mail and all these other places mm. because that is the only way to synchronize libraries across her right. devices so when she's taking photos of the kids they end up on my phone and vice versa it's a ridiculous sticky pain point and it's a funny thing because it feels like Apple and Google and these others have tackled much bigger problems, like being able to type the word dog and pull up photos with dogs in right. them. Right, yes. <laughs> I mean, the, the scale of complexity there has got to be a couple orders of magnitude higher. Right. And yet this really simple pain point of being able to share libraries, full libraries across accounts, is now just barely being tackled by Google. So kudos to them for doing it, and hopefully Apple's mm -hmm. is 
is lined up to do it next. But this is, it's a funny thing because I am now seriously considering setting up Google Photos right. just for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And those 500 million monthly active users they have on Google Photos, you know, is an indication that this is something that does appeal to people. And, you know, I, exactly. I use some Google services, but I use Apple devices, but I've never you know, in the last few years made any kind of investment in iCloud photo sharing or anything like that because I just find it too cumbersome. And I feel like I have, the model is still an assumption that you want to access everything on a device rather than say through the web or through a web connected app. And I just don't like that model because I don't feel like I have enough control over what's actually on my device and, and where it's accessible, you know, from third party devices and so on. And so, you know, I feel like Google has done some really useful, interesting things here. Yeah, I um, agree. There was a brief segment on YouTube. I don't think it's worth going into because there really wasn't that much that was new there. It was kind of odd, again, in the context of a developer event because there's really very little developer stuff in YouTube. Uh, so I think we'll skip over that in the interest of time. And we've really talked a little bit about Android uh, and the fact that it seemed to be relegated. And again, it started about an hour and 15 minutes into the thing, the segment on Android. It was a very quick run through uh, all the other versions of Android like Auto and Wear and TV and Things. Um, and then a very quick run through as well of, of Android O. And then the most interesting part for me of the Android segment was about uh, what they're calling Android Go, which is about getting yeah. more, getting smartphones to more people in emerging markets. And so something Google's obviously tried before with Android One. It hasn't been a huge success. It te technically, I guess, it still exists, um, but it's not been a huge success for them. This was about sort of sub $100. Android phones and really it seemed to me as if this was a way to kind of lock down the Android experience for people in emerging markets um, but it didn't really have a ton of customization um, and what Android Go really does much better is sort of rethinking how Android should work from top to bottom in emerging markets such that um, the whole thing has kind of been rethought around the data constraints around the sort of on-device memory and various other things that are likely to be constrained in the devices in these markets and then I think really importantly as well not just optimizing the Google apps for those markets, but then giving developers incentives and tools to improve the way their apps perform in emerging markets as well, and then highlighting them in a section in the Play Store. That feels like a really important advance as well. So I found that really interesting. I don't know about you. No, I did too. And, and I mean, the truth is there are another four and a half to five billion potential smartphone users out there that still need to get a smartphone. Yeah. And I think this is one of the ways that Google is is really way ahead of anybody else, um, is just sort of finding ways to reach further and further into emerging markets with their products and services. Uh, you know, these, these, these economies are all going to grow. They're growing now rapidly. Um, and, you know, 10 years from now, they're going to look very different. 20 years from now, they're going to look dramatically different. And if Google continues to keep tweaking and refining and, and and working on the way that they're reaching their mar these markets, they will have a dominant position uh, two decades from now. Yeah, and they're, they're already dominant. I mean, that's the interesting thing here. This isn't about Google fighting back or trying to gain share from anybody else. They are the de facto smartphone standard in emerging markets. There really isn't anybody else that's playing there now. You know, Windows Phone was kind of playing there for a while, but they really have disappeared as a competitor in smartphones in general. Uh, iPhone obviously doesn't really compete in the sort of parts of emerging markets that this this initiative targets. So they're really dominant there. So it's really about just expanding the addressable market, about pushing smartphones even further down in price points and performance and so on. So they, they've succeeded so far. 
arguably sort of despite their lack of optimization rather than because of any optimization for emerging markets. And so, you know, as they actively target that kind of optimization, I think they'll do that much better. Um, and as I say, mostly about expanding the addressable market and improving the experience that people have with Android smartphones in these regions. And, you know, I think it's a great, it's obviously highly self-motivated in, in that Google wants to expand the addressable market for its ad revenue generating services. But it's also, you know, a very positive thing for internet connectivity and access to, you know, all the digital services that the rest of us are enjoying in those markets, which is a good thing for the local population as well. Yeah, and I mean, Google's dominant in smartphones there, but the smartphone markets there are still not nearly as big as they're going to be. Mm -hmm. And that's why this is so smart, is because, like you said, as market as a market penetration strategy, they're essentially ensuring that as more and more smartphone users come on to smartphone platforms, that it ends up being Google's. Right, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's just spend a couple of minutes to, to finish things off talking about VR and AR. And it was interesting uh, to, to go to Build last week and then to watch the I.O. stuff this week um, to see how these two companies are talking about VR and AR. And actually, they're talking about it in somewhat similar ways and yet different ways. Both companies are talking now about a continuum or a spectrum that runs all the way from actual reality to completely sort of digital worlds. Um, they're using different terminology to talk about it. So Google's fine with using the terms that people already know and understand, like AR and VR, but suggests that these aren't sort of mutually exclusive or competing visions, but just points along a spectrum. Uh, Clay Bavor, who runs this area at Google, calls it immersive computing, which I think is a, a bad name for it, frankly, I think, because people don't think about this yeah. stuff as computing. It's mostly about gaming and entertainment and education and things like that. It's not, these aren't computers. I mean, in a literal sense, of course they are, but that's not how people are thinking about them. So it doesn't feel like a good term. But I think happily, they don't seem to be pushing that term on people. They seem to be pretty agnostic about the terminology and happy to use VR and AR as terms that people already understand. You know, Microsoft has its own term, which is mixed reality, but really means the same thing. And so I think, you know, seeing this interesting sort of uh, similarity between the two companies and the way they talk about this stuff. Um, from a VR perspective, uh, Google announced uh, standalone headsets that will run on Daydream, um, which is their platform so far for mobile VR. Um, they also announced that Samsung's going to be updating the S8 and S8 Plus in the summer to support Daydream, which is a big step because that's really been the biggest single barrier to daydream adoption is that the, the by far the largest Android vendor doesn't support it so far um, and has its own competing platform with Oculus. So that's a big deal. But yeah, standalone headsets coming from HTC and Lenovo later in the year, probably others as well, I would guess. Uh, be very interesting to see where those are priced. We're having a kind of conversation on Twitter earlier about this with some people. I think they'll probably be priced a little below the price of a premium smartphone on a standalone basis, so maybe 500 bucks or so. Uh, it'll be very interesting if they can hit the kind of quality that would justify that price point in competition with, say, a $100 add-on to a smartphone or conversely, the very sort of high-quality stuff that's being done around consoles and PCs with, you know, HTC Vive and Sony PlayStation and uh, various other bits and pieces that are out there. So some interesting stuff there. On AR, it's still very nascent. Google's really not doing much that's interesting with AR. A tiny bit in education. They're doing Tango, which is interesting, but just tiny scale. So Tango is their sort of indoor mapping stuff using smartphones that are really marginal for today. The interesting thing that came out of the second day VR keynote 
And so they're actually using that Tango learning to feed back into Daydream and the, the standalone headsets really use a lot of the technology that they've developed there. But really feels like Google's much more invested in VR for today. They might finally be able to take Daydream uh, to more mass market now with the support from both new form factors and new partners on the mobile side. AR, they still feel like they're a marginal player to me. Yeah, I you know the thing about the going back to the comment about about this all being a continuum of immersive computing, I I, I have a hard time buying into that uh, metaphor primarily because a headset is a stark jump from one kind of experience to another. I, having to spend four to five hundred dollars on a headset, like a daydream headset, for example, that's not a trivial thing. That's not a continuum type thing. That's a huge step from being able to hold your phone up, right, like with Google Lens, and go, mm-hmm. oh, okay, you know, here's the Yelp review on that shop right, on that restaurant because I can hold my phone up and get it immediately just by holding up the camera. That's really cool and convenient, and it's something people can have access to right away. Buying a headset is a whole other step, and it feels in in a practical sense and day-to-day use that there's still a bit of a chasm between those two things because of the difference in hardware required to have one experience versus the other. And so I think I think in consumers' minds, AR and VR are still going to be pretty distinct from each other. Um, the use cases are going to be really different still. Um, the hardware needed is always going to be really different until, you know, we all have implants installed into our eyeballs. <laughs> so, you know, until that time comes, there's they're they're going to be pretty separate. and i don't I don't buy the continuum thing. And I think the fact that that, uh, you know, like you're saying, Google seems to be doing well in VR, but not so much in AR shows that this this isn't there, there's still a, a big difference between the two use cases. Yeah, and I think one interesting thing is Google, I don't think Google really described Google Lens as AR. I mean, it clearly is a form of AR, um, but it didn't describe it as that. So it seems to see that as separate. And I think that's partly organizational so that within Google, the sure. AR and VR group doesn't own Google Lens. And so they don't see it as part of what they're doing. Yeah. But, you know, what we've also seen from Facebook in the last few weeks and, and you know, probably we'll see from Apple in another couple of weeks is, you know, this version of AR that's very smartphone centric because that's yeah. sort of mass markets, what everybody has. It has cameras, increasingly has dual cameras. So you get depth perception and so on as well. Um, and, you know, that's a much more mass market proposition in the short term than VR is. And we'll get versions of AR that are glasses based over time as well. And HoloLens is arguably AR today. A Magic Leap will be AR when that launches later this year. But, you know, what we're seeing is this very mass market smartphone based AR approach. And then this very headset dedicated hardware sort of gaming centric approach to VR right now. Um, and so, yes, technologically, they're on a continuum where you mix reality and virtual reality in different degrees. But as you say, the experiences themselves are still very different with AR feeling like it's much more mass market because it's based on a platform that right. we already have. Um, yeah. And that's interesting to watch. OK, well, um, we've taken up about 45 minutes in talking about all this stuff. I think it's time to wrap up. But hopefully this was useful for you as I say. If you haven't listened to them already, I did a deep dive uh, last week on Build. We did a deep dive on Facebook F8 a couple of weeks before that. We'll do the same thing again with WWC in about three weeks' time. Uh, so you know we'll be covering all the big four sort of consumer developer events 
as they happen. Um, and again, we'll have a news roundup episode tomorrow where we'll talk about some of the week's other big tech news. Uh, as last week, it really feels like Google's kind of dominated this week's news, but there have been some other things going on that will be worth talking about too. So we'll be with you again tomorrow with that news roundup episode. I hope you've had a great week so far and we'll be with you again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye.